This podcast is sponsored in part by Eno, the Capital One assistant that catches things that might look wrong with your credit card and sends an alert to your phone to help you fix them. It is another way that Capital One is watching out for your money when you're not. What's in your wallet? See CapitalOne.com for details. CapitalOne.com. I've always been a fan. I've been a fan all the way back when you were uh, ESPN, uh, when you called the quarterback Everett Chrissy. <laughs> hey, Chris. And then uh, Everett, Everett got, took exception to it. And I was like, man, Jim Rome got some dog in him. Like, most guys would have backed down and said, okay, I'm not going to say it again. You said it again. I was like, I'm a fan for life of this dude, man. He, he, got, some, he got some piss and vinegar. What's cracking? Welcome in, everybody, to episode 127 of the Jim Rome Podcast. I hope you're all well and that you are staying safe. This week, I'm going to play the hot hand, and I'm going to stay with the 1990s Chicago Bulls train. And why the hell not? It's all anybody is talking about while sports are on pause, and the Last Dance documentary is on heavy, heavy play. And my guest for F-127 is the one and only Stacy King. Stacy is a former Bulls first-rounder out of Oklahoma, and he got to Chicago five years after Mike and promptly ripped three straight world championships with him. And after a really nice NBA career and a fistful of jewelry to show for it, Stacy King hit the Bulls broadcast booth where he has been just as remarkable. Nobody knows the Bulls quite like this guy, and frankly, there is nobody quite like this guy. So let's get it rolling. Episode 127 with Stacy King starts right now. Beep, 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 beep. I am so hyped, Stacy, to chop it up with you and get caught up. First of all, how are you living? How are things, big dog? Well, you know what? I mean, under the circumstances, uh, you know, I'm, I'm healthy, I'm safe, I'm with my family, uh, you know, in quarantine here in Illinois. And, uh, you know, under the circumstances, uh, hey, it could be, could be better, could be worse, but I'm in good shape. Good. Glad to hear that. All right, so I appreciate you making time for this. Obviously, I want to talk to you and get your thoughts on the last dance and the three rings you won in Chicago. But, Stacy, before we do that, I want to talk about your indoctrination to the Bulls, which actually started before you were drafted by the team. You had this legendary workout against one of their big guys, which is even more amazing because you weren't physically going to work out for them. Can you lay this out for me? And if you have to go, it's a podcast now. If you've got to get <laughs> kind of colorful with your language, you can. What happened in that workout, Stacy? Well, my agent was uh, legendary David Falk. And, you know, when you're a lottery pick, um, you know, you really don't have to work out. You know, they have enough videotape of you. You go through all the the physical testing at the, you know, which used to be a combine for all the players. And you go to an interview process. And, and so you don't really have to work out. You do individual testing, vertical jump, your speed, all that stuff, but no physical contact. And you know, at that particular time, you know, I come into, you know, Chicago, I'm, I'm all excited. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's uh, Doug Collins and, you know, we watched the Bulls a lot in Oklahoma because we had, you know, a twin, you know, Harvey Grant was Horace Grant's twin. He played with me at the University of Oklahoma. So we watched a lot of the Bulls games because of that reason. And then, you know, Michael Jordan was on that team. So we were, I was really excited to get the call to come uh, work out for him and, so I get to Chicago, you know, Doug Collins is there, Jerry Krause, you know, all the coaching staff. Um, so I'm excited, you know. So they said, hey, we want to, you know, put you through testing with our street coach. Did all that, the customary thing that you, you normally experience. And I thought that was it. So they said, hey, we want to see you do some court work. So I'm like, uh, well, you know, I'm kind of like, uh, really, should I do this? You know, I don't really want to do this. And I, Doug kind of challenged me, you know, and Johnny Bach, the assistant, the great assistant coach, uh, the defensive assistant coach for the Bulls during those first three championships really challenged me, basically said, you know, what are, what are you afraid to work out? You know, test, tested my manhood, you know, you know, don't be, you know, don't be a, uh, don't be first day a pussy per se. And so that kind of challenged me. And I was like, okay, cool. I'll work out. So I started doing these court works and, you know, screen rolls, picking pops, you know, just all the, the normal stuff you put a guy through to see, you know, what kind of skill set he had. And then they come and say, hey, you know what, we want to, you know, this is get a little bit too easy. We like to put a little resistance up against you, a little little contact. And, you know, I'm like, ah, I don't know, you know, if I get hurt out here, you know, it's before the draft. and I don't want to, you know, tear an Achilles or, you know, a knee. And 
And they said, no, no, you know, just, you know, you know, it's okay. You know, we're not going to hurt you. You know, we, everybody's doing it, da-da-da. So I wanted to call David Falk to see if it was okay. But then again, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm being challenged. And I didn't want to seem like I was soft. So I said, all right, cool, let's do it. So all of a sudden, here comes a guy. We were at the old multiplex um, where we – the Bulls used to practice before they built the Berto Center, and now they, you know, they're at the Advocate Center down in the city. So I see this big guy coming in. Now, granted, I don't know who it is. He looks like Dave Corzine because Dave Corzine was still playing at that time. I think it was his last season as I came in, as I got came in that draft in '89. So he comes in, and um, you know, he's got this wild hair. He's, he's tall. He's a lot skinnier than he looked on TV. You know, I thought he was a bit bigger. So I'm all this time I'm thinking I'm going up against Dave Corzine. So the guy comes in, he's putting body on me, he's banging me around, and you know I'm like, yo man, take it easy, bro. It's just you know we're just it's a it's a simple workout. You know we're not like playing physical, we're not doing a one on one competition. So my thinking was it's like here's a guy who's you know was a starting center for the Bulls the year before. Uh, this might be his last season. Here comes a young lion coming in. So I just assume he just wanted to show me like you're not going to get my position. So he's just banging me around. So uh, they throw me the ball in the post. They said, you know, make a drop step and then spin baseline and, you know, lay it up or dunk it. So I, I proceeded to do that. And, and, and Corzine, who I thought was Corzine, like knocked the shit out of me, like knocked me to the floor. And I'm like, dude, what the fuck? What are you doing? You know, what, what are you doing? And so I, I got up and I'm ready to fight the guy. And he just said, you know, shut up. Stop being a pussy. You know, and I'm like, dude, I'm, okay, I, you must not know me. Cause I don't, I, you, I don't know you, but obviously you don't know me. I don't put up with that stuff. So next thing you know, I said, okay, I'm going to get this dude back. So they said, everybody was laughing, you know, kind of Doug Collins chuckling and everything. And they thought it was funny. And so I said, so they said, dude, you know, do it again. We're going to do that same move. They didn't say anything to Dave Corzine, who I thought was Dave Corzine. Like, Hey Dave, take it easy. Kids just here, you know, to work out. They didn't say anything. So I said, okay, this is a test. This must be a mental test for me to see if I'm strong enough mentally to withstand physical play, you know, because at the college level, Jim, as you know, th- there wasn't a lot of physical play at the college level. You know, fouls were fouls. You, you didn't hard foul in college. So it's a different game in the NBA. So I said, okay, I'm going to show him I can play NBA style. So the very next play, I said, I'm going to get this Corzine. I'm going I'm to tear his ass up. So they throw the ball in. I make the same move, drop step, boom. But instead of this time with the spin, I clocked him with an elbow in the face, bam, and then I dunked the ball, and he kind of fell, you know, staggered. So then I took the ball, I got the ball at the net, and I said, I said, play, pussy, and I threw the ball at him. Great. (laughs) So he commenced to try to attack me. So I'm like, they separated us. I'm ready to fight. He's ready to fight. Uh, The string coach, Eric Helen, uh, and Al Vermeule, they come in and grab me. They, you know, everybody breaks it up. People are laughing. Doug Collins is having a, a blast with this. So they said, you know, Jerry Krause is there. The late Jerry Krause says, uh, all right, just go to the dressing room and, you know, get, you know, get dressed and, you know, come back. We'll do the finish of the interview process. So, so I'm walking out and I'm with the, the string coach, Eric Kellen, who at the time was a little bit older than me. So he probably was about 24, 25. And so we're walking off and he's laughing. And he goes, man, we need somebody like you, man, because, you know, Pistons, you know, we need some people that will fight, you know, people that will, you know, they won't back down. He said, man, you – you really impressed me out there. And he says, um, he goes, he goes, man, you got a temper. I said, yeah, man, I don't play that shit. Like if you hit me, I'm gonna hit you back. So then he starts laughing. He says, you know, you know who you almost got into a fight with out there. And I'm like, yeah, Dave Corzine. <laughs> you know, I'm like Dave Corzine. Like, you know, I, I know who he is. And he, goes, he starts laughing. He says, no, that's not Dave Corzine. He said, do you even know who Phil Jackson is? And I'm like, who? Who who, who the fuck is that? He's like, it's Phil Jackson. You know, he's, you know, he's assistant coach here. He plays for the Knicks, blah, blah. And immediately, immediately there's a regret. (laughs) Incredible. Incredible. You know, you've been, you know, you have your full of air and all of a sudden, (laughs) and you go all the way down to zilch. That's how it felt. I was like, oh my God, I almost fought an assistant coach. I'm definitely not coming here. They're not going to draft me. I'm going to get labeled a bad attitude, uh, you know, and so I go, I go get dressed in the shower, and I'm, I'm hesitant to even go back. I'm just ready to call David Falk, get my plane ticket, dude, get me out of here because I, I, they're not going to draft me. And so I go back to the, um, to the office. You know, Phil's not there yet. He's showering, too, in the coach's office, and it was just Jerry. You know, it was Doug Collins. It was, you know, Johnny Bach, um, Tex Winter. 
so we're, they're sitting in the room and and they're they're waiting and then, you know Jerry Krause you know kind of like reprimanded me you know he said you know you got to you know hold your composure and you know you can't you know fly off the handle like that what if the Detroit Pistons you know we're in a game seven and the Detroit Pistons you know do that to you and you lose your composure and you hurt the team by your actions and I said Mr. Krause I'm just going to be honest with you then you shouldn't draft me because if someone slaps me I'm slapping them back. And I Doug Collins in the back going, if you aren't the sixth pick, we are drafting. We need more guys like this. Oh, he loved it. Like, I was just like, I, I started to laugh, but I didn't want to laugh because here's the head coach basically saying I did the right thing, and then you got the general manager telling you you did the wrong thing. So I was like, Doug's my kind of guy. That's who I want to play for. So then, like a couple minutes later, Fields comes back in. Now I know he's not Dave Corzine, so I'm a little bit now I'm, I'm a little bit humbled a little bit. Like I'm okay. I'm I gotta you know he's a coach. Respect you know that's how I was you know raised and that's how I've always been as a player. So I didn't know if it was over, Jim. <laughs> Seriously, I, I I didn't really know it was over. So he comes in, you know, he's got a duck to get in. He's a, he's a gangly guy, you know. Yeah. And you know he's got that deep voice, and I'm sitting in the chair, so I'm thinking I'm telling Jerry Krauss like before he came in, I was like I hope this is over, like. I'm sorry. I didn't know he was a coach. I thought it was Dave Cuisine. And he goes, oh, it's over. You know, it's, it's just forget about it. It's over. But he comes in, and you know how you can just look in a guy's face and you can just see that it's not over? <laughs> you know, you just got that sense. Like, he had that sense. But then later on when I play with Phil, that's just his look. You know, that's just the way he looks. He always looks like he's mad or angry. And uh, so he had that look on his face like he, the, the fight wasn't over. The, you know, the scrap wasn't over. So, I, you know, I kind of got in the, you know, my fist balled up, ready to jump out the chair. Wow. <laughs> and then he goes, how you doing, Phil Jackson, assistant coach? And I'm like, that's when I knew it was over. So I was like, okay, good. Woo! Incredible. I have to get into another scrap, you know, with the, with the assistant coach. But um, it, was, it was a learning experience, man. It was a fun, it was a fun time and, and, you know, one good story. Stacey, it's one of the greatest stories. I love that story. I love everything about that story. I think my favorite part, though, is when the strength guy said, you know, that was Phil Jackson. And your response was, who the fuck is Phil Jackson? <laughs> and then you found out he was the assistant. And Stacey, really quickly, the amazing thing was, and, and you hit it off immediately with Doug Collins, but he was not long for that gig. How long was it before you found out that you were going to play for the same guy whose ass you were about to, t- about to kick? And what did you think when you got that phone call? Well, it was very, it was very quickly because, you know, after the draft, you know, up in New York, uh, you know, the Bulls do an introductory to the, the draft picks. And so myself and BJ Armstrong and uh, Jeff Sanders, who was in the draft that year, the Bulls had three first round picks, you know, after a 50 win season, which was, you know, unheard of. And so uh, we go to Chicago, like on that Monday uh, to do a uh, press conference and Doug wasn't there which is very weird, but I don't know the inner workings of the NBA as a college kid at that particular time. So I remember asking Jerry Cross, you know, where, you know, where's Phil at? I mean, where's Doug at? And he's like, Oh, he's, he's out scouting. And I'm like, wow. Okay. Well, cause I talked to him on draft night and he was excited. He was like, I'll, I can't wait to meet you, you know? And, and so I was excited to meet him and play for the guy because he, he just would, I thought would have been my kind of coach, you know, no nonsense, a guy who really cared at passion. I liked it, you know, so we got there, he wasn't there and it was kind of weird. And then, so I fly back after the press conference back to Oklahoma to Norman and I get a phone call later that night. And this is before like social media and all that stuff. You know, you, you had to hear directly from the horse's mouth at that particular time during that era. And so I remember getting a phone call from Phil and basically telling me, hey, I'm the new head coach for the Bulls. We're excited <laughs> to have you, and which, would, which is his first year as well. He had been a rookie coach as I'm a rookie player. And, you know, we're, I'm really excited. And, and, you know, I was just kind of shocked. I was t- taken back by it. But, you know, I just figured, hey, you know what? Um, I just met the guy. You know, um, he seems like he knows a lot of basketball. And then I did my research on him when I got back home, found out that he won championships with the Knicks. Uh, you know, he was a pivotal player with that team. Um, he coached in the CBA. So I, I did my homework on him when I got back to Oklahoma after the little dust up, you know. Um, and then I got off the phone. And I, the first thing I'm thinking that I told my girlfriend, who, who was my wife, later on, I told her, I said, man, I hope this doesn't come back to haunt me. Like, he's now the head coach. He can have some ill feelings towards me. So right. that was the first thing, you know, a 21 kid would think of uh, at that particular time. But, you know, it worked out, man. And, and 
you know, I was part of some special special times here in Chicago. No doubt. Now, Stacey, I've done this long enough. I remember you as a college player, and, you know, it's never easy, but there were times when you made it look easy because you were so big and so athletic and so quick, and you could just jump over dudes. And what I want to know is this. How much of your success at Oklahoma, when you were just dropping 30 on dudes nightly, how much of your success there was a direct result of that Jordan poster that you had on your wall, <laughs> and did you bring that with you to Chicago? Well, that's, a fun, that's another funny story. I could write Hit a me. book about this kind of Hit stuff. Hit me. So, so at, at, at Oklahoma, you know, everybody idolized Michael because he just came in the league and he would take the league by storm. And I remember him at North Carolina – um, and so I was a big fan of him, even in North Carolina. Um, and so, you know, when I was in Oklahoma, I had a poster on my, in my apartment wall of, of Michael. And so, you know, before every game, you know, everybody has these superstitions and things that they do. It doesn't matter if you play sports. It doesn't matter what you do. People have superstitions and routines that they go to that they believe that makes whatever they do work. And that's basically what happened to me. You know, it's a poster of Michael Jordan. It, it could have been a poster of Prince. And if it would have brought me some, got me 40 points, I'd have been rubbing prints, you know. But so at the, you know, I'd go to a game, I'd walk out the door, and I'd always have to rub the poster one time with my left hand because I'm a lefty. So I'd always rub it with my left hand. And so I'd go out and commence to dropping 30, 40 points. I'd have great games, you know. And then there would be times, Jim, that, that I'd forget to touch the poster. And I didn't play as well. And I always attributed that, oh, man, I didn't touch MJ today. Man, this is what happened. Damn, I got I to remember to touch the poster. So it brought me luck in college, in my mind, you know, 19, 20, 21-year-old kid. It brought me luck, I felt, and that was the thing that got me going. So when the Bulls drafted me, the first thing I thought was, was not, not the fact I'm getting drafted in Chicago, is that now I don't have to use a poster anymore because I'm going to be with the guy. So being in the same room in the building with the guy, that's going to be way better than a poster. So my first game in Chicago – MJ's locker was across from mine. He was closest to the door and the training room. And I was over towards the shower. All the rookies were, you know, closer to the shower. So uh, he was getting dressed and he was, uh, you know, getting his shoes on. He, you know, he always wore his North Carolina shorts under his, under his uh, game shirt, uh, short. So he was in his North Carolina shorts. He was just putting his pants on, his, his uh, shorts on. So he, he, was, he had no shirt on. So his shirt was off. So I'm getting ready to go out to warm up. And it's just me and him in there. So as I'm starting to walk off, I'm like, man, you know what? This is my first NBA game. I don't have a poster. MJ's standing right there. This is way better than a poster. So I go over to MJ. I take the left hand, and I you know, kind of rub his shoulder, like, you know, rub down on his shoulder. And then I was like, wait, I better get another one just in case. So I did another one. So I, I go two. I normally only go one, but I go two. So MJ turns around like, what the fuck? Man, what are you doing? I'm like, dude, 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 relax. I said, I'm just, I had a poster of you in, in, you know, when I was in college. It brought me good luck. And now I figured, hey, I'm playing with you. So, you know, maybe it'll bring me double luck. He's like, man, you better go go back and get that fucking poster. <laughs> so, 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 so now that I look back on it, you know, later on in my life, you know, it's like as you get older, you go, yeah, that, that might have looked kind of bad at that particular time. I could, I could see that was an awkward situation. But, you know, as a 21-year-old kid, you know, you're not thinking that. You're just thinking that, you know, hey, this, this was something that, I, that made, I felt made me better, you know, as a player. And now I get to see the live version of it. I get to play with the guy for the next, you know, years. And I could do this every game. But after that little, after that first, you know, first little experience of the two, the two rub down, I realized that uh, <laughs> there won't be any more of that. I see you working, Stacey. I've already done the same thing. Now, you mentioned off the very top that you, it didn't take you long to figure out that it's about the Pistons. It's about the Pistons and figuring out how to deal with the Pistons and ultimately get over them. So what were those battles like? For instance, were they physical or were they just dirty? I think it was. I think it was borderline. I think it was borderline. There was a physicality to it because at that in that era in the '90s, Jim, you know, a lot. It was a physical league. I mean, you had, you know, think about how many seven footers you see now in the NBA that were like Shaq, like two eighty, three hundred pounds. Back then, you had almost every team had two or three of those guys, and so that in itself made it physical. There was hand checking. You could actually put two hands on a guy when they drive to the basket. You know. You know, hard fouls like we that we saw that were regular fouls in the 90s, you'd be in prison right now in this league. <laughs> For so sure. A big difference. 
You know, you can't touch anybody. And so with Detroit, uh, and they took it to, they took it as far to the edge as you possibly could. I mean, when I say that, I mean they they did everything within the with the rules, the confinement of the rules, but they pushed the limits to the very end. I mean, they didn't they didn't mind giving up a flavor foul. It sent a message to teams like you don't come in here, and it wasn't just with MJ and us; it was with everybody. They intimidated everybody who played against them. I mean, if you beat somebody off the dribble from the perimeter and you were, say, 18 feet away and you had a direct line to the basket, you were constantly not even focusing on the basket. You were looking at where is the blow going to come from? Is it going to come from in front, the back, the side? And then you might blow a layup because you're so concerned with where Lambeer was or where Rick Mahorn was or James Edwards or Sally or Rodman. And so you kind of took yourself out of the game and, that's what it did with everybody. And, and when, you know, as long as they were the bullies on the block, you know, they ran the show. And, and you know, the Bulls were, were trying to, you know, they, when I got here, I did not know how serious the rivalry was. I mean, I saw some fights at the United Center when, when my man Johnny Bach got body slammed by Rick Mahorn on the scores table and Juwan Odom was fighting the Pistons. I remember that because I watched it. And that's when everybody got off the bench. You know, everybody, I mean, every team got off the bench. People were throwing things. And you talk about the, the, the malice in the palace type stuff. That stuff was going on on a regular basis, you know, back in the 90s. I mean, it was bitch-clearing brawls. Um, it never spilled into the stands, per se, like what Indiana and Detroit did. But it was, it was, you know, it was hand-to-hand combat back then. Stacy, like for instance, I've told the story, but to me, it was kind of like a lifestyle. I can remember back in the day, I was doing a TV show and I had a panel and Rick Mahorn was on the panel with the great Steeler linebacker, Kevin Green. And the two of these guys started talking shit and kind of good naturedly. But, you know, these are two fiercely competitive dudes talking shit. And before you knew it, during a commercial break, they were about to go out back and either play one on one or get it on. And, and they were and they were serious. Both these guys. I'm like, fellas, you know, like we're here to do a TV show. You got to stop. <laughs> but it was like a lifestyle. Like Mahorn was not playing was. and neither was Green and neither one of them were backing down. And then watching the last dance this past weekend, like Horace and Michael both made it pretty clear. They're still pissed that the Pistons walked off the floor without shaking hands when you guys finally did knock them out. Does that bother you? Are you still pissed about that? You know what? I mean, it, it, at that particular time, I was. But as you get older, you know, Jim, I mean, what, what, what does it prove? What does it solve? You know, it's over and done with. You know, we beat them. The, the, at the end of the day, we beat them. We swept them. You know, we got over that, that mental hurdle that seemed to keep us in a certain spot you know, where they just had their thumb on us, basically. No matter what we did, no matter how, you know, strong we got or how better we got, they always knew they had our number, and, and it showed. And then when we finally got over that hump, here's how serious the rivalries, because you don't see rivalries right now, Jim, in the NBA. Everybody's friends. You know, let's, let's get on the banana boat together. Let's go to, you know, on islands together. Everybody's friends. You know, we go out to dinner. During those days in the 90s, uh, there was no friends, Jim. I mean, we didn't, you know, we didn't like go and hang out with guys from other teams. Like, if I was in, if I was in the Bahamas with my family, and I was in the lo- hotel lobby, and I would have saw, you know, Rick Mahorn, John Sally, Isaiah, there would have been a, a Mexican standoff. There literally would have been like, it would have been one of those moments where like, who's gonna move first? Are you gonna be? You gonna come at me? Or am I gonna come at you? That's how it would be. It would be no, hey, Isaiah, how you doing? Hey, Dennis, how you doing? It was none of that. It was, we literally might go to blows right there in the lobby. That's how intense the robbery was and the hatred between the two teams. And not only, not only, uh, not only Detroit, but the New York Knicks, you know, we didn't, we didn't get along with those guys either. So there was no friends during that time. So, and it also carried with the fans. It wasn't just the players and the teams. The fans hated Chicago fans hated Detroit. Detroit hated Chicago fans. Knicks hated Chicago fans. Boston hated Detroit fans. I mean, it was really like there was dislike amongst every team in the NBA. That's how that's how intense and competitive it was in the nineties. And, you know, it just carried over to even off the court. I mean, you didn't if I saw if you play for the Pistons, Jim, and I and I'm with the Bulls and, you know, we're in line to to, to grab a, a sandwich at Subway. And you're you're in front of me, or I'm in front of you. We're liable to fight right there, not for the sandwich, not because I'm in front of you or behind you. It's the fact that you play for that team, and I don't like you. You don't like me. We don't even know each other, but we might go to blows. 
And wasn't it so awesome? Hey, Stacy? like, I don't want to go all boomer on everybody, but when and how did that change? Well, it, it, here's the interesting story that they kind of left off in the last dance. And, and they kind of hit on it, but it kind of went by it. When we lost to Detroit in Game 7 when Scotty had the migraine game, you know, people, Scotty took a really big hit about that. And I'm going to tell you, I was there. I witnessed it. The, 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 my man Scotty was in some serious pain. Anybody who's had a migraine, has suffered a migraine, who suffers from migraine, they know exactly how he feels. They know exactly what goes through when you have a migraine. The guy was seeing double vision. He, I mean, he was in so much pain, he was crying on the way to Detroit on the plane. And so we all knew how sick he was. And that's why you'll never hear any of the teammates say, you know, Scotty let us down. Scotty didn't do this. Scotty didn't do that. Because we know, had Scotty been 100% and Scotty didn't have those migraines, Jim, we'd have won that series. That championship Detroit won that year, we would have won. And that would have started an unbelievable run. But he had the migraine. And also, people don't remember John Paxson, our starting point guard, went down with a knee injury in game six and couldn't play in game seven. So we were down two starters going into a game seven against the Pistons. That's, that's something that's failed to be mentioned there, too. But here's the, here's the main story that I think that really turned us around. After the game was over, we're in the locker room, and you know when you lose a heartfelt game like this, this is my rookie year, and you know I'm, now I understand how tense the rivalry is now after this playoff series. Uh, Jerry Krause comes in, you know, and he gives this spirited little speech, you know, like, you know, this is not going to happen again, yada, yada. No one was really listening to Jerry. No one wanted to hear from Jerry right now, you know, because you know the relationship, even back in the early 90s in that first championship run, was tainted. So what you're seeing, the relationship with Jerry in the, you know, 97, 98 season, the last repeat was going on way back in 91 when I first got there. So I saw it. So Jerry comes in and, you know, he wants to give the, you know, win one for the Gipper speech, and no one really wants to hear it. So basically he leaves. Michael Jordan, I'll never forget this. Michael Jordan stands up, and he's in this spirited conversation. Now, everybody in the room is looking up. Guys who are crying, eyes are looking up. They're looking at him talk. You could tell how passionate he was about this, how bad he wanted to win this series against this team. He stood up and said, basically said to all of us, this will never happen again. We will not lose to this team ever again. And he went down, Jim, to each and every one of every person in that room that was on that team and basically said what they needed to do. You need to do this, you need to do that, da, 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 da. Came down to me and B, BJ, who are rookies, basically said, you guys got to get stronger. You got to be in the weight room. You know, you got to improve your games. I mean, I felt like, I honestly felt like he, there was a light, an aura, an energy about him that was transcended as him as a basketball player. So basically, you could just feel this lightning bolt just come through and hit everybody. And then that summer, which we never did, because in my first year, we, we worked out individually. We'd go two or three guys together. It wasn't a, a unity. It wasn't a, a team type of thing. But that summer, after we lost to Detroit uh, you know, in Game 7, uh, everybody made a commitment to work out together. We'd all show up at the gym together. We'd all work out together. We'd play together. And, and we really started bonding off the court as a team. And that kind of was the turning point that got the Bulls on those championship runs was that loss to Detroit, as bitter as it was and as hard as it was to take, is probably the best thing that could happen to us as a whole. It, it changed our whole perspective on what we have to do individually. And, Jim, no one was like, no one was questioning Michael. No one was like, oh, man, we don't want to hear, you know, it's easy for you to say. No one was doing that. People were receptive, you know, because a lot of times in this day and age, you know, guys don't want to hear someone, you know, ragging on them or, 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 you know, questioning their toughness or their mentality. You know, you hear enough of that from coaches, you know, but we had so much respect, you know, for MJ and his competitive nature because we see it every day. So we know where this place is coming from. We know it's not coming from a place of – you know, uh, bullying or anger. We know it's coming from a place of, of competitive drive. A guy who's getting tired of getting his butt kicked every single day by the same bully. It's time for us now, instead of having them take our lunch money, it's time for us to take their lunch money 
and, and continue to take their lunch money, which we did. And that was the turning point. Right. It's a great story, Stacey. And the other thing, I got two thoughts on that. Number one, Mike was not going to ask you all to do anything that he wasn't doing himself. And number two, as you know, as well as anybody, you often have to, every championship team has to get through that one thing or that one team. And the Pistons was that team for the Bulls. You know, I'm mesmerized, Stacey, watching Mike just sit back in that chair, drinking his branded tequila, cigar <laughs> off to the side, and just roasting dudes. I mean, it's an amazing thing to see. Is that the Mike that you know, or is the viewing public only still getting a piece of the Jordan experience? They're only getting a piece. That, that's the PG-rated, the Disney Channel, MJ. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a deep... And, and more intense side of, of Michael Jordan. I mean, I, I, I've seen it firsthand, so I know. And, you know, I don't, I'm the type of person, like, you know, to play with Michael, you have to be mentally tough. You, you have to be men- not so much physically tough. You have to be mentally tough because Michael will challenge you uh, in ways that are outside the realms of basketball. Like, Michael will challenge you. He'll challenge your manhood. He'll challenge you. And if you, you were a guy who backed down, and you didn't fight back or show him that you have fight in you, you know, then you couldn't play with him because he, that, that's his way of seeing if you're mentally tough to help me go against Detroit. Are you mentally tough enough to help me go against these, these freaking giants that I have to go against on a nightly basis in order for us to win a championship? I need, I need guys who have the same mentality that I have that can go out here and deal with the mental warfare that we're going to face against the Pistons. And, you know, he, he, you know, he's that kind of guy. And, and the guys who play with him in these championships, look at Steve Kerr, for instance. Steve Kerr is a guy who got, you know, who got punched in the face by Michael Jordan. That's a, that's a legendary story. They got into a fight in practice. Steve Kerr didn't back down. Steve Kerr didn't say, thank you, Michael, can I have another? Steve Kerr <laughs> soldiered up and said, oh, hell to the no. You ain't going to punch me. I'm going back at you. You might, you might be bigger, you might be a little stronger and have a, have a bigger reach, but I'm going to show you, I don't care who you are, you're not going to put your hands on me. And he got the respect of Michael Jordan. You know, and, and, and that, I, I've seen tons of that you know, as a player with MJ. MJ challenged you, you know, mentally, and Kobe Bryant was cut from the same cloth. You know, I've, I've heard stories, you know, I know Kobe personally, but I, I've heard stories from guys when Phil – Phil took a lot of his coaching staff with him to L.A. So, you know, you, you talk to these guys and, you, you know, what is Kobe like in practice? Because Michael in practice never missed practice. Michael never set out practice. Phil would generally have to force Michael to sit out of practice. Michael could play three games. And imagine this, because in a day and age where we got load management and all this other stuff that goes on, the superstars of the 90s weren't missing games and they were still playing 13, 14 years at a high level. So it can be done, but I understand why load management is the way it is today. It's a different era, you know, with all the, you know, analytics and stuff that goes on. I get it. I get it. But I do know that as a superstar player, Michael Jordan didn't miss practice. Michael Jordan didn't miss doing suicide sprints like everybody else did. He was right there in the front line doing it. So, so Jim, when you're a young kid and you see your superstar player is your, is the hardest worker, how can you come in there and say, hey, you know, I don't feel like practice today, my toenail hurts, or, you know, I'm having a little soreness around my back area. If Michael Jordan, Bill Cartwright, you know, John Paxson, guys who are coming in with a lot of aches and pains and you see are hurting and they show up to practice every day, how can a 21-year-old, you know, young kid say, you know, I want to sit out practice today, I'm not feeling good? You just didn't do it. You didn't call in sick when you're in Chicago. And if you look at the numbers, Jim, and analytic people look at the numbers, we had the fewest games missed with our core group. We didn't miss games. Phil, the games we, we, we missed, Phil made people take sabbaticals. He made Bill Cartwright take two weeks off because he said, hey, we need you for the playoffs. And, 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 you know, to Bill's you know, credit, he didn't want to do it, but Phil forced him, you know. And so that's one reason why I say, like, you know, when you look at these kids and I hope when they look at this last dance, these superstars of today, they look at how MJ and Scotty and those teams competed not just in the games and in practice, how they came with a workmanlike attitude. And, you know, they, they were just, you know, take, you know, kicking ass and taking names. And they didn't care. All the distractions, think about all the distractions, Jim, they had to go through. You were during that time. You were, you, were, you were reporting and stuff during that time, doing shows in that time. That team was like a rock star. They were like rock bands. Uh, I've never, Stacey, I've never seen anything like it. And the people today, 
don't understand it. I've never seen anything like it. They really were like the Beatles. And maybe there was no social back then, and maybe media was not the same way. But in terms of a team and a traveling band, there was nothing like it. And the way you lay it out is really so interesting and so fascinating. You know what I wonder, Stacey? If you, like, if, if Phil Jackson made Bill Cartwright take a sabbatical, and guys did not have load management. Guys didn't take time off. I understand this notion that Dennis Rodman is an example. When I mean, this guy worked. This guy worked and yes. worked and worked. I mean, he was legendary for his workouts after games. So when it was go time, he was always there. But I'm curious, what do you think Michael really thought? And they touched on this on camera. But what do you think Mike really thought when Phil Jackson went to Michael and said, hey, listen, Dennis wants a vacation right now. What do you think really went through Mike's mind? Michael probably said, hell to the fuck. No, I mean, we're trying to win here. We got people missing. You know, we're trying to get a championship. We know this is the last season. Uh, the one thing I will say this about Phil Jackson, honestly, Jim, I mean, he is a player's coach. He's a guy that, you know, a lot of these coaches, I'm in, you know, I'm in the broadcasting field. You know, I'm, I'm doing Bulls broadcasts. I see coaches come and go. And the one thing I can always say about Phil, Phil got it. Phil understood that this is a player's league. And he always supported the players. When you see in the last dance about the Scottie Pippen uh, contract situation, you heard Phil, so when they asked him a question, were you upset with Scotty when he decided to have his surgery later instead of earlier? Phil flat out said no. And he meant it because he understood, you know, what the players were going through. There would be days we'd come in and we'd have four games in five nights. And Phil would come in and we'd get ready for practice. And Phil would say, okay, we'd meet for 10 minutes. And then Phil say, everybody get the hell out of here. I don't want to see anybody in the, in the facility. Go take the day off. Go spend time with your family. Get out of here. I don't want to see you here. And guys respected that because it's like, wait a minute. This guy, he's played the game. He knows what we're going through right now. He knows the stress and the pressure that we're under as players. Now he's saying, hey, you know what? Go home. Relax. Go hit some golf balls. Go chill. Go hang out with the family. He, he, he took the time to know his players, the pulse of his team. And what I mean by that, Jim, is not only just because he gave you the books. You, all, you know the legendary story. He gave everybody books on the plane, which he did. That is a true story. Every year gave everybody books. But the thing I liked about Phil was the fact that he took the time to know you personally. Like he would know, like when I had, a, I had my first son, you know, he'd walk on and, you know, how's Eric doing? He would know my baby's name, and he'd only met him once. He would know my wife's name. He would know all the kids – uh, names that the players had he knew family members and so when you're looking at a guy like that it says to it says to you and I know it said to me that this guy looked at me more than just being a basketball player he actually cares and that was awesome you know I remember I had my second son and uh, he was going to be born on the day we had a game and you know I didn't want to miss a game that's how that's how serious it was you know I didn't want to miss a game because that was our first championship run we beat the Lakers and I didn't want to miss a game but I also didn't want to miss the birth of my son. And we were in Chicago, and he flat out told me, he said, he said, hey, stay there as long as you have to. You know, be there for your wife, be there for your son, and we'll meet up with you when we get out, you know, west. And I ended up missing, you know, a couple of games for the birth of my son, and I never forgot that. You know, and me and Phil didn't always see eye to eye. No coach and player does. But the one thing I always, I always respected about Phil uh, not just the X and O part is the fact that he actually cared about his his, his uh, team and his players, and I, I really really like that he stood up for the players, and and that you don't see that a lot. No, I've got to think also as a player and a father, you don't forget that stuff. Stacy, before I let you go, since you mentioned that, you've got correct me if I'm wrong, you've got four boys all in their twenties, right? Yes, sir. All right, so you're in the quarantine life right now. Can y'all knock a few back, talk a little shit, and how fun is that for you now at this point in your life? I tell you what, Jim. I mean, time goes by so right. fast, man. You got to enjoy every day, and it's funny. I can sit back and drink beers with my boys now, and, and go, you know, have a good time, talk about old things. But it's it's so funny because I just remember them having drinking juice cups and bottles, and now they're drinking beer bottles, and it makes you see like, man, how how time flies. But for them, they get a kick out of it because you know, they, my older son was born right during that first championship run. And, you know, babies, he's a little baby, toddler. He doesn't remember any of that stuff. But, you know, now they see, like, you know, that, that their dad was part of something special. And now that this stuff has come out, you know, they're like – because in Chicago, you, you know, when you – you know how Chicago, it's a great sports, you know, city. And, you know, look at the 85 Bears. They're still revered here in Chicago, and they haven't won a Super Bowl since. 
and the Bulls with six titles, man, we I can't think of any restaurant we go to that we don't get special service. I mean, the city loves their loves their their athletes here, and it's awesome being in the city. And um, you know, like my kids, you know, finally get a chance to see things, and they they finally see how good their dad actually was. And I got my jersey retired in uh, at Oklahoma. It hangs in the rafters, and I brought it to that ceremony. And they were like, "Man, Dad, you were really good." I'm like, "Yeah, I was." And I always tell the funny story to them. I'm like, "Cause I was a big time scorer in Oklahoma." And so I always tell them, I'm like, hey, man, you know, the only person that really guarded me in the NBA was Phil Jackson. That's the only person that <laughs> So that, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> oh, that is the best. That is the best. I mean, ne- never mind that you could have gone first overall in the draft. Hey, Stace, did you tell them also that when you left Oklahoma to go to Chicago, you took a big pay cut? Do they know that? Yeah, yeah, I took You know, hey, I, 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 I don't want to get anybody in trouble. But, yeah, I, I did take a little pay cut when I came here. No, oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> Stacy, last night, it, it, this is so You know, awesome. everybody assumes that in Oklahoma, everybody got paid. I know, right? You, know, you look right, at the odds and, you know, you look at all the, the football program there, you know. But I, I tell you what, man, I mean, you know, I, I've got nothing but love from, from Oklahoma. I was born and raised there. And, you know, who knows, man, I, it would have been really cool, like, you know, to be able to play, you know, with Oklahoma City. Like, being, have an opportunity. Any NBA player have an opportunity to play at home in front of their home crowd or state, you know, like LeBron playing in Cleveland, you know, uh, that'd be awesome. Think about MJ playing in Charlotte. How, how crazy that would have been. I mean, I'd rather, I'd rather see MJ in a Charlotte uniform than a, a Washington uh, Wizards uniform at that time. I, I don't even count those years he played in Washington. And that's what makes this whole last dance so ironic is because at the end of the day, Jim, that team had at least one or two more title runs in it. And it's so sad to see the way it ended because they were so dominant during that run that you could have seen them squeeze out one title. And, and, and as you know, you know, Jerry Krause's biggest thing was, was he didn't want the bulls to end up like the Boston Celtics. That's one thing he always said. And I've heard him say it a million times is when, when Larry got old, the chief got old Paris. I mean, uh, Mikhail got old. They got, you know, they had the injuries and they were breaking down at the end of their career. Jerry's biggest fear with the Bulls is that he never wanted them to be like the Celtics. But where Jerry didn't, where he underestimated was the ability and the athleticism that Scotty had, that Michael had, you know, Dennis Rodman had, that those guys took care of their bodies a little bit different per se than Larry. Larry and, and Mikhail and those guys probably didn't lift weights and do the things that, that these modern day kids are doing. And Michael and those guys had at least two more titles in it. Because if you think Michael going to the Wizards playing two years, those are two years he could have been with the Bulls. You know, Scotty playing in Houston and, and Portland and almost helping Portland get, get to the finals uh, against the Lakers, you know. And those are years that, you know, Scotty could have been in Chicago. So that's what is really so sad at the end of it. Egos and personal pride got in the way of it instead of saying, hey, look, you know what? We all are, we all should get credit for this. You know, we all are part of this. You know, it's great for the organization. Who cares who gets more limelight? Who cares who gets more press? At the end of the day, it's about titles. I don't care who gets the most press. You know, we all know that everybody's going to benefit from the organization winning, the Chicago Bulls winning. Think about now, the Bulls brand is one of the best brands in the world, and they haven't won a championship since 98. Mm. It's so true. Stacy. one last thought. You know, when I talked to Scott Brooks about a week ago, and he was talking about how he was watching tape of Kobe Bryant in the finals recently from years back, and he said he was really struck by, you know, a number of things, Kobe being Kobe, but the fact that if a teammate made a play in a big moment especially, how hyped, how fired up Kobe was. I'm curious about Mike. Like, if you made a big shot or Paxson made a big shot or somebody made a big play when it mattered most, was Mike really hyped on that? Or or did Mike kind of approach it like, hey, man, that's your job. We prepared for this moment. Do your job. What was Mike's response? He was hyped. I mean, I can go back to the to the Portland finals when we were down, you know, 16 points going into fourth quarter, you know, and Phil Jackson, you know, he'll never admit it, but we all know, like, you know, we were going, we were, he was preparing for game seven in Chicago. So we're down, you know, 16 points. And he basically says, all right, second unit with Scotty. I want you guys to go in there and just, you know, you know, just play hard. And he knew that we were all chomping at the bits to get in there anyway. So it's myself, B.J. Armstrong, you had Scott Williams, you had Cliff Levenston, and then you threw Bobby Hansen and Scotty out there. 
And so we came back from a 16-point deficit. And as, as we were coming back, we cut the lead down to like three with enough time for us to come back and win. And the whole time when Portland was calling timeouts because we were making a run on them, MJ, you'll see it in the video. MJ's jumping up and down, you know, waving a towel, screaming, you know, cheering for his teammates. And, you know, he, he was that type of guy. I mean, you know, I know the frustrations early in his first seven years, he might not have been that way. He, he, he was more focused on, you know, himself because the teams that he played on before the championship years were not very good. He was the only reason why they were competitive. So I think once he, you know, got the people around him, um, you know, that, that made him believe like, hey, th- we got a shot here. You know, we've got enough talent here and a deep team that we can win. He was always supportive of his teammates, always supportive of his teammates. And that's what made him a great superstar. He could be hard on you, but he could also come up to you and grab you by the head and, you know, give you a nookie on the head saying you're doing a great job and, you know, slap you on the button saying keep it up, which, which was a fine balance, you know, because that's what you need sometimes. Sometimes you don't need a, a guy grilling you all the time. Sometimes you need a guy to come over and grab you by the – his neck and say you're doing a great job and and he did that and you know he was very supportive of his teammates Stacey I never keep a guess as long as you but you were so great final thought like maybe what you're doing right now is not the dream gig I think deep down your dream gig is to be a comedian with your own special on Netflix or something else but broadcasting <laughs> you know, my man it's the next big thing right the next best you know thing what? hey listen man I, I, I've been thinking about that next that next gig I'm gonna do man this is like my it'll be my 16th year this year going into this next season so I really love doing what I'm doing, man. I get to work for the team that I played for. It's awesome. Uh, but I can see myself, you know, doing a podcast, man. That'd be because then oh, you know, podcast you can say and do whatever you want. I just noticed that, and so I'm like, I didn't know you. Could, <laughs> I didn't know you could say, you know, the drop some f bombs and stuff on here. So, so I think that's really cool, man, that you're doing. I've always been a fan. I've been a fan all the way back when you were uh, ESP, and I still I saw a clip the other day, which is so funny. Uh, when you called, uh, when you called the quarterback Everett Chrissy. <laughs> Do you see that shit? Said, hey Chris, hey Chris, and then uh, Everett Everett got took exception to it, and I was like, man, Jim Rome is got some dog in him. Like <laughs> most guys would have backed down and said, okay, I'm not gonna say it again. You said it again. I was like. I'm a fan for life of this dude, man. He he got some he got some piss and vinegar, bro. I, I like this dude. My I've been following man. your career, man. The jungle. I, I watch all that stuff, man. You're you're one of the best in the business, bro. Stacey, you are the best. I appreciate you so much. And by the way, you were built for a podcast. I mean, you could do a lot more than a podcast, but if you want to have a little bit of fun, you absolutely you could show up an F bomb. You can fuck this guy. You can do whatever you want on a podcast. Stacey, you're built for it. I, I got That'd be much, a lot of fun. That's it. That's it. I got much love and much respect for you, as I mentioned. I did not mean to keep you so long, but it was so fun. Stacy. thank you so much. It was an absolute blast. If you need any help at all with that podcast, you let me know. Otherwise, I hope we can do it again soon. I appreciate it, Jim. Thanks a lot, buddy. Now more than ever, we need people with the right skills to support our communities, especially the frontline workers who provide resources and care for those who are most in need. To help out, LinkedIn is offering free job posts for healthcare and essential service organizations that need to quickly fill critical roles with the people who are helping us all. If you are hiring for one of these organizations, job posts on LinkedIn can help you quickly find the right people for your frontline. LinkedIn can help you find frontline workers from its active community of over 675 million members. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates for the skills and experience that you're looking for and puts your job post in front of qualified people who meet your requirements so you can find the right person to quickly fill critical roles. To post a healthcare or essential service job for free, or if you're in another industry and you have hiring needs, simply visit linkedin.com slash Rome, linkedin.com slash R-O-M-E. Terms and conditions to apply, linkedin.com slash Rome. Does anybody know how to post videos to Does Facebook? Does anybody know how to post videos to Facebook? What an awesome conversation with a truly awesome dude, Stacy freaking King, if you need him. And if you like that, go let my man know about it. He is on Twitter at Stacy21King. That's at Stacy21King. 
And while I'm asking you to do stuff, let me ask you also to get subscribed to the podcast, please. It's quick, it's easy, it's free. It will automatically bring you a new episode to your listening device so you never have to go looking for this thing ever again. And I appreciate you doing that very much. I'm going to get up out of here, but before I do, here are your voicemails. First new message. Aaron, you chocolate bunny cake. You cannot waste another year of your career in Green Bay. Ask for a trade. Get the hell out of there. You cannot end your career with only one damn Super Bowl, man. Get the hell out of there. They don't value you anymore. Message saved. Next message. This is Homie Hall. I'm getting the Presidential Medal of Freedom for restoring baseball and basketball next week. Athletes wear a clear plastic ball in their nose, red bulb and buzzer inside, strap around the head with wire to lithium battery on the belt, then to a rectal thermometer. Temperature rises, bulb flashes, buzzer sounds. Message deleted. Next message. Yes, this is Ken Milwaukee. As a Packer fan, I think we've seen this story before. Somebody drafting a quarterback when you have an older quarterback on his kind of getting in his older days. I wonder how this is going to turn out. I hope Aaron Rodgers remembers what happened with him and Brett Favre. We heard Brett Favre yelling, Yahoo! All the way up here in Wisconsin yesterday. Maybe when Tom Brady leaves Tampa Bay, Aaron Rodgers will be ready to step in his shoes down there. Hope you have a good one. Stay safe. Thank you much. Bye. Message saved. Next message. Holy shit, Conor McGregor! Damn, dude! <laughs> message deleted. Next message. Hey, King Timothy, this is Lionel from Texas. Man, I love football. That's my favorite way to be entertained. I think it's the best sport. Check it out. The United States is where baseball was invented. Japan can hang with us at that. The United States is where basketball was invented. Jamaica can hang with us at that. Football, if we tried to play, let's say, just one state, California versus Canada, you know we'd whip them. Or France play against Florida. You know we'd whip them. And I'm from the best state, man, Texas. If we put Texas against, you know, Japan, Jamaica, Kenya, everybody can gang up, try to fool Texas amateurs. You know we'd whip their ass, man. I love the jungle. Long live King Jimothy. Adios. Message saved. Next message. What's up, man? Smack. This is Ralph from H-Town. Just trying to live it day by day with this virus going on. Begin to be with Imperioli. Begin to be with B.J. Armstrong. Definitely going to be uh, digging back into my old Soprano episodes. Tyler and Edmonton, I thought his call was bad. Then came Roger Goodell talking about hold my beer. Raiders holding the 2020 draft next year in 2020. Tell me he does not just say that. I'm out. Message saved. Next message. Jim, congratulations. 26 smack off. I moved to San Diego in 93. I used to pack around a little transistor radio, listen to you when you were pushing five hours a day on the Mighty 690. I've moved back to Canada, but I'm sitting here in the mountains. Uh, you betcha I'm going to be listening to you on June 6th, 19th. I ain't missing that one. Thank you very much. Peace out. Message saved. Next message. Brady is trash. I hate Brady. He can take those six Super Bowl rings and shove them up his ass. Message saved. You have no more messages.